Praise the Lord. If you can remain standing us a moment longer as we read pastor's text this morning. It comes from Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I shew thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and after the pat and the pattern of all instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, in this moment, we set our attention to your word and what it has to say and what you've placed in our pastor's spirit and soul for this season and this time that we live in. And I pray, God, that we would be open to submit to your word, to hear it, and let it begin to soak into every fiber of our soul and let it change and transform us, Lord. Help us to walk in it. Help our pastor deliver the word. Give him freedom and power this morning to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Good to have everybody here. I can't wait. I'm so excited to get into the word of the Lord. We're going to get into this thing running. We've got a lot of a territory to cover here this morning. But again, this, this is the fourth sermon in our series on the tabernacle. And we're talking about the symbolics of the tabernacle and how they relate to our modern day worship of today. As I've mentioned before, and let me say it again, just as a reminder, the symbolism in the building of the tabernacle and each piece of furniture that was built was a type and shadow of how you and I are to conduct ourselves in our worship toward God. We talked about how that the Old Testament in its types and shadows and in its representations, how they are used as our schoolmaster for our learning, each and every one of us. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us into Christ that you and I might be justified by faith. And even though that we're not living under the law, that we're living under grace, we are living under the new covenant of Jesus Christ, yet we must understand that the types and the shadows and the symbolism of the things that were written aforetime, they reveal that which was to come through their symbolics. Everything in the Old Testament, it points points to, it reveals, it uncovers, and it represents Jesus Christ, who's God's only begotten Son, who's the only Savior of the world. How many believe that Jesus is the only Savior in the world? Can I have an amen today? Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might find hope. Buried in the rituals of the sacrifices of the holy days and the symbolisms of the furniture and their elements are the principles that still govern our faith today in this 21st century. Today we're gonna to try to move as much as we possibly can out of the outer court into what we call the holy place. We've been talking about becoming a holy place dweller instead of an outer court Christian. How many wants to be a holy place dweller instead of an outer court Christian? Amen. In order for this to happen, we have to go by the way of the laver that we talked about last week that stands before the door to the holy place. As you can see, we already preached on the we preached on the temple, we preached on the altar of burnt offerings, and we preached on the bronze laver last weekend. We talked about the laver and how it represents what we call sanctification. And we dealt with the doctrine of sanctification last week. And folks, I can't hardly get off of it. The Spirit of God is just is telling me to stay there just a little bit longer. But the only way into the holy place, that place where Christ and lead are, the remnant, those of the inner circle, like his chosen 12, you know, that little group that he wrapped around him 
himself. The only way to be that kind of a person is, first of all, is going by the way of the laver. Does you say that Christ loves uh, some people more than others? It has nothing to do with love. It has to do with people willing to position themselves in the place to where they can become a part of a remnant instead of just a courtyard Christian. No one enters into the holy place without a life of sanctification. Again, the word sanctified means what? To be set apart and also to be cleansed. Sanctified people are those that crucify their flesh. They mortify the deeds of their body. They set their affections on the things above and not on the things of the earth. They present their bodies as living sacrifices. They deny worldly lust and the desires of the flesh. They're dead to self and they have learned self-discipline and they've consecrated themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The sanctified man has separated his life for the cause of God and for the purpose and the wills of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not saved just to be saved, but you're saved for the kingdom purpose. Can I have an amen? We're not saved just to miss hell and go to heaven, even though that's the benefits. Yet you and I are saved for the purpose of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we know that all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and to them who are called according to his purpose. Look at somebody and say, you're called to the purpose of God. You and I all are called for the purpose of Almighty God. These people that are in the uh, holy place are spirit-led instead of being carnally minded. They have learned abstinence, self-control. They're committed to the things of the spirit. They don't straddle the fences. They don't stretch boundaries. They don't test limits. They don't glance or peep at things which is questionable. They don't dabble into that which is borderline. They flee the very appearance of evil as Paul told us to. They touch not, handle not, nor uh, uh, the things that are unclean. They come out from among the world and they separate themselves and they come out from among the culture and its fads and they become a separated people. Now folks, that's hard to preach. That is not normal 21st century preaching, but we gotta get back to it. There is a, there is a sanctifying process that God demands the church to go through in order to be the church that he desires for us to be because he's coming after a church without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing and that it should be holy and without blemish. You can't be without blemish if you've not been through the purging and the sanctifying process of Almighty God. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices unto the Lord. Our focus is on pleasing God and not making statements by stretching limits and doing things inconvenient so that the world can identify with us. That's one of the biggest lies of the world that the church thinks they gotta become like the world in order to win the world. That is a lie from the pits of hell. God wants to be a peculiar, a peculiar people, a holy people, a separated people. And the power of holiness and the power of the glory of God will draw the sinner to the church. You don't have to dress like them, act like them, get into the latest fads, get on the internet and try to become like them in order to win them. David Wilkerson, when he went into New York to go into the gang-related areas to win them for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Cruz, I forget his first name, one of the top leaders of the gangs finally after he got saved and much of them got saved he said you do know we've killed a lot of people like you he said if you would have come in here talking like us dressing like us acting like us to try to win you you wouldn't have lived no time but because you were different and because you was a man that stood to your principles if you can't believe in your own principles then don't try to cram them down my throat and let me tell you that is the way that I believe it today I may be old fashioned you can call me a fuddy dud you can say I live in the past but I believe in the principles of the word of God I believe they work I believe that God's got to have a people that is a separated sanctified holy people in order to win this generation can I have an amen 
We are the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world. Can I have an amen? Give the Lord praise. Hallelujah. Oh my, I'm about to preach here today. Woo! I feel the anointing of the Holy Ghost. We look in the book of Hebrews chapter six, verse one through three, and we find some interesting passages of scripture. It says, therefore leaving, say leaving, the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of hands and of a resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. First of all, the writer of Hebrew was trying to get the Hebrew Christians to a place of maturity in their relationship with God and in their faith. These Hebrew converts were in constant danger of relapsing back into what we call Judaism. Or at least they were attaching themselves too much to the importance of ceremonial observances. The chief doctrinal purpose of the writer of Hebrews was to show the transcendent glory of the Christian dispensation and compare it to that of the Old Testament. And first of all, he was telling them, you should move past and leave the doctrinal principles of Christ as a believer. And he's not talking to the sinner, he's talking to the brethren, he's talking to the believer. He looks at the palace of praise this morning and said, hey guys, it's time for you to leave the doctrinal principles of Christ. Now that you say, what in the world is he telling you to do? Then he tells them, let's go on to perfection. He said, in other words, there is a higher place of learning. There is a higher place of commitment. He said, I want you to leave the doctrinal principles of Christ and let us go on into perfection. He's leading them to maturity. He is exhorting them to grow, to mature, to develop, to rise up, to find purpose in their faith. The writer of Hebrews really nailed it when he tells them in the book of Hebrews chapter five, verse 12, which is very convicting. For the time has come when you ought to be teachers, but you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And you are become such as have need of milk and you're not able to handle strong meat. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, as long as you've been a Christian and been converted, you should have been further advanced in your faith, faith than what you are now. He said, by now you should be teaching, but you are in need of a teacher. You can't handle strong meat, you're still on a bottle. You know, it don't bother me to see Christians on a bottle because we've all been babes in Christ, but what bothers me is when you have to part a mustache in order to put a bottle in. Can I have an amen? In other words, when it's time to mature, it's time to mature. We got to grow. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us, he says, I want you to understand you've been in the faith long enough that by now you should be teaching others, but you're having to be taught. And you cannot handle the meat of the word. You're still on the sincere milk. You're still wrapped around the fundamentals of salvation instead of moving on to maturity. Let Kent Miller put in his own lingo. You know I've got my own language because I mispronounce I don't know how many words and make up words, but you know what they mean. So how Hallelujah, I'm smarter than you are. I create languages. Amen? Your pastor's smart. Everybody says, ah, oh, you mispronounced it, but we knew what you meant. Hallelujah. I'm sharp. Kent Miller has his own lingo. Let me put it this way. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He says, it's time to quit being courtyard Christians, and it's time to be holy place dwellers. That's what he's telling the church. It's time to grow up. It's time to quit having to revert back to repentance. And it's time to learn how to live a life of victory. You need to quit having to live at the brazen altar in the outer court. And you need to learn how to dwell at the altar of incense in the inner court. That's what he's saying, and there's a big difference. Your prayers, he says, need to be changed from constantly repenting into the prayers of relationship. 
Your prayers don't need to be, oh, I'm sorry, I sinned last night. Oh, God, forgive me this failure. Oh, God, I ask you again. Failure. And it's always repenting because of a, a, a life that is not matured. He says it's time to, for you to move away from the brazen altar and learn how to go into the holy place and go to the altar of incense where you're praying about the will of God and you're praying, God, what's your assignment for me today? What is it that you desire out of me? What is it that I have to give to you? That's the kind of prayers that he wants us to start praying. Your prayers need to change from the prayer of repentance to the prayer of relationship. And it's time that you quit having to be reminded all the time, he says, about the provision of the cross and its forgiveness and doing your first work over. He says, which is water baptisms. He even mentions water baptisms in that. What's he saying? To quit water baptism? No, he's not telling us to quit water baptism. He's just saying that you shouldn't have to be doing your first works over, over and over and over. You shouldn't have to be baptized every time you turn around because you're having to start all over again. He said that is not a life of victory and that's not a life of maturity. And he said even though that, that happens and God doesn't reject you on the basis of your repentance, he says, but it's time to grow up. And then he goes on, it's time for you to quit having to be reminded of eternal judgment in hell to keep you saved all the time. You shouldn't have to be reminded every day of the victory that's provided through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to know that, that's fundamental. Now, first of all, he's not telling us to abandon the first principles of the doctrine of Christ because they're essential and they're fundamental to our faith. When he says leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, the word leaving does not speak of abandonment, but it speaks of moving past. Thank God that they're there when they'll need them from time to time. We all need to go back to the brazen altar from time to time. Thank God it's there. If we sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Can I have an amen? If we'll confess it. But the writer of Hebrews, is admonishing us by saying you should not need that brazen altar all the time. The outer courtyard brazen altar is necessary but we shouldn't have to camp there beside it. We have to understand that these principles are necessary they're important and they are the gateway to maturity. They are what brings you into the presence of God you cannot come into the presence of God without repentance, without confession and without faith. They are foundational but they are not the place that we pitch our tent but they're only elementary to our faith. Can I have an amen? Uh, a person doesn't stay at, in the first grade all the time. If he does, he's got a problem. But in order to graduate, he has to finish and go all the way to the 12th grade to get his diploma. He has to leave the elementary classes and he has to go on to high school. The doctrines of the principles of Christ are foundational. They are what secures the house and without them, everything's on sinking sand. So that's how important they are. The Bible tells us, I'm not trying to preach a lack of importance on these. They're very important. 1 Corinthians 3 and 11 says, for other foundations can no man lay than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation, he's the chief cornerstone. The foundation itself has never, however, housed anybody. There has to be the framework of the gospel that brings discipleship and Christian service which builds up a holy inhabitation, brick by brick, piece by piece unto the Lord. We have to count our cost of how and what we're gonna build upon the foundation that's been laid, and that is our salvation. It was Paul that said in 1 Corinthians 3, 19, listen to what he said. According to the grace of God which has been given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, another is building upon it, but each man must be careful on how he builds upon that foundation. The apostle Paul said the foundations are the elementary foundational principles of Jesus Christ. And he said, but the house is not erected until we learn discipleship and we build upon that 
foundation. He said, and be wise of what you build upon it. Don't build wood, hay, and stubble, but to build, build with gold and silver and precious stones, which we're not going to get into today. In Hebrews 6 and 1, again, it says, let us leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ and move on to what? Perfection. How many wants perfection? How many thinks that you're perfect? Thank God no one raised their hand. Even the apostle Paul said, I've not yet obtained. I strive for perfection, but I've not yet obtained. But one thing he did says, I strive for it. I push for it. And if the apostle Paul was coming up short, I want to tell you, you and I are coming up short. Can I have an amen? But he's telling us, let us move on toward perfection. Do you notice that he admonishes us by saying, let us move on? First of all, he says, let us. In other words, that word us denotes all. He's wanting everybody to go, not some of us. And then he said, none of us to be left behind. Maturity is for everybody. The remnant has paid a price to be where they're at. I hear people gripe all the time. Oh, they're the, they're the pets of the church. They think they're the spiritual people. They're the elite. I want to tell you something, folks. They paid a price to be where they're at, to be in the inner circle with Jesus Christ. Can I have an amen? What are we to move on to? He gives us 11 admonishes in the book of Hebrews alone. Listen, chapter four, verse one, let us fear. Chapter four, verse 11, let us labor. Chapter six, verse one, let us go. Chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near. Chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast. Chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider one another's relationship. Chapter 12, verse one, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Chapter 12, verse two, let us run with patience. Chapter 12, verse 28, let us have grace. Chapter 13, verse 13, let us go forth. Chapter 13, verse 50, let us offer, 15, let us offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving praise unto God, which is our reasonable service. Come on, somebody. We don't have time to preach on all of these admonishes, but all 11 of these admonishes, I want to tell you, I could preach hours upon, but they, they represent a mature believer, those that's going on, going forward, advancing. Just to mention a few, he says a mature believer will be a relational. He'll lay aside sin. He'll run with patience. He'll be a person of grace. He'll always be moving forward and advancing. He'll be sacrificial. He'll be a person of worship. He'll be a person of prayer. He'll be a person that has, uh, has a reverent fear to God. He'll be a laborer in the kingdom. He won't be idle. These are just a few of them, and we could preach hours upon hours upon hours just upon these 11 admonishments. I'm just mentioning them and moving past them. What strikes me odd, and this is where it's going to poke you right in the eye, because it did me. I've read the Bible through I don't know how many times, and I've studied for 37 years just in preaching alone, not counting my study prior to, to the ministry. And when I read this, it just nailed me between the eyes, and I never thought of it in the context the way the Holy Spirit gave it to me. But it says uh, in Hebrews 12 and 2, when he's talking about leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, he tells us to leave the doctrines of the laying on of hands. Now, don't you find it odd that he said it's time for you to leave the principles of the laying on of hands? That strikes me funny because the writer denotes that the laying on of hands was just elementary in the Christian faith. That's just elementary. And yet we Pentecostals, we put all of our stock and barrel in it and we look at it as the main course of being the most important. And when we see people lay hands on people and they have results, oh, them are spiritual people. And yet the Lord said, no, that's just elementary. We judge things by the way that people operate by the laying on of hands, whether they're anointed or not, or whether God's blessing them or not. And yet Jesus said, the laying on of hands, the doctrine of the laying on of hands is just elementary, it's foundational. 
One of the things that we have to understand and that is we see more demonstrations of God in the outer court than we do in the inner court. Now that may surprise you. Everybody thinks, oh my goodness, if we get to a certain level, you're gonna see all these demonstrations all the time. Well, let me tell you, more demonstrations are seen in the courtyard with courtyard Christians than they are with holy dwellers. Why is it getting quiet in here? There are times that fire fell down out of heaven and, and consumed the sacrifices upon the altar and the people seen that. Kawoom, how many would like to see that? There were, every night they could go out and look above the tent. There was the cloud by fire there at night. Every day they could see the cloud of God's glory by day hovering over that tent. They seen the demonstrative, manifested presence of God. We have to learn to move past the visible demonstrations of God and we have to learn how to move in the realm of what we call manifestation. Demonstration reveals the acts of God, the power of God, and the, his mighty movements. And we're to praise him for his mighty acts according to the psalmist. Yeah, they're important. But manifestation is the unveiling of God. It speaks of presence and it speaks of relationship. Oh my. Help me preach right here because this is one of my favorite things the Holy Spirit gave me. The problem with the church world of today is that we're more focused on demonstration than we are manifestation. We crave experiences, but we despise relational disciplines. I want to tell you, relationships are messy. Can I have an amen? amen. Paul, when he was, when he was uh, talking about our relationship with Christ, he used a symbolism. He used an example. He says it's like a relationship of a husband and a woman, his wife. Me and my wife have got a great relationship. I love her, she loves me. We've been married for a long time. <laughs> Amen? I got a boy, fixed to turn 40 years old. So we've been married a long time, but I wanna tell you something. I love her, she loves me, but our relationship is messy. And sometimes our relationship stinks. Don't look at me piously, you all go through that too. Relationship is work. Can I have an amen? But a lot of Christians just want to come in, see the demonstrative of God, have the thrills and the bells and the whistles and just have a hallelujah glorified time, but they never want to go home and never apply themselves to relational disciplines where they learn how to enter into the very presence of God where they can know him on an intimate level. Can I have an amen? I'm plowing ground and I'm plowing deep today. The problem is when the demonstration acts of God are over and they don't show up, a lot of people fall apart. They don't know how to live in peace during difficult times. They don't know how to respond or react when God seems to be silent and when he seems to not be moving. Their faith is all about sight and feeling and emotions and experiences instead of a relationship of trust. We hear people all the time say, where's the miracles? Where's the healings? Where's the power of God? And I've been guilty of saying that too and I've had to repent over it by studying this message. But our focus is on the demonstration and not knowing that our answer to that question, where's the miracles? It's all lies in the manifestation. It lies in the presence of God. It lies in us knowing him. Come on, somebody. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said something very hard to us. Matthew 16, four. 
A wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and there shall be no sign given unto, but given unto them except the prophet Jonah. We know what the prophet Jonah's sign was. He's in the belly of the well for three days and three nights representing the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Which is what? Elementary. Jesus said, the generation that always has to see these demonstrations, he said, if they're not careful, they can become an evil generation. He went on to say, these are the people that no sign will be given to. And yet, Jesus promised a believer in Mark 16, verse 17 and 18. Hang on. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. It is the word of God contradictive here? One minute it seems that he's condemning people for looking after signs and the next minute he's telling us that signs should follow the believer. What we have to understand is we don't need to be seeking after miracles we need to be the miracle. Come on, somebody. Miracles are to follow us as believers. God are to confirm his word through us with signs following. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. That ought to be followed. Come on. Miracles are fixing to happen, but I'm not looking for them. They're just gonna happen. They're gonna manifest when God's ready to manifest them. This happens in the life of a believer who dwell in the holy place. Can I have an amen? Things happen, things move, things are accomplished, things change, things shift. When anointing is exercised through the living relationship with God, especially through the anointing because it's the anointing that breaks the yoke and the bondage off of people. Can I have an amen? Instead of seeking for signs, we need to draw near with full assurance of faith. Because that which is not a faith is sin. We don't seek signs. Signs seeks us. Can I have an amen? If we can only believe by seeing, then we're courtyard Christians. We're nothing more than doubting Thomases. But believing is seen, and this is demonstrated through holy place dwellers. Did you catch the difference there? The doubting Thomas can only believe when they see. But the holy place dwellers, they believe, which causes them to see. Amen? We need to be what Matthew chapter six, verse 33 says. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. If we would spend more time seeking him than we do looking after signs, we would see a lot more signs. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. That means Lord sanctify me. Lord set me apart. Let me have a clean hands and a pure heart. Let me not swear deceitfully. Let me not handle anything in vain. Help me to be a pure man, a holy man, a righteous man. For the pure in heart shall see God. Let me be all you want me to be. And if I'll just seek him and his righteousness, things begin to happen in my life. They just start falling in. And everywhere I go, these things begin to follow after me like a dog following after a man with a bone in his back pocket. Come on, somebody. God wants to put his witness upon the church with signs and wonders and divers miracles, but the only way he can do it is for the church to quit seeking after the sign, seek his face, get into the inner court, become a holy place dweller, and God will fill this place with his signs and wonders. Would you just lift your hands and praise him for a moment? That's where he's wanting us to go. This is a word in season. This is where we're headed. This is what we can expect to experience. Why? I believe by faith. This holy place dweller is saying, hey, buddy, get ready. Belkle your seatbelt. We're about to see some things. 
Can I have an amen? Signs, wonders, miracles, healings, blessings, goodness shall follow us all the days of our life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What did he say? Where, where does that come from? By dwelling in the house of the Lord. By being a holy place dweller. Amen? Courtyard Christians that gravitate to the demonstrations without going into the holy place, they will not grow outside of the context of having to always see something before they can believe. Always having to have revival, always having to have camp meeting, always having to have an outpouring, always having to have an experience. Come on. And when them things ain't happening, oh, what's wrong with our church? Sometimes God has to let you go through some storms. Why? To allow enough water to come on deck to wash the decks. Storms has a way of cleaning you up and getting your attention. Amen? Just start giving your kid everything that he wants. See how spoiled he gets. And sometimes you gotta withdraw in order to get his attention. That's the same way it is with God. This is why Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen and you have believed, but because of, because, but blessed are those who have not seen, but yet they still believe. In other words, seeing is not believing, believing is seeing. And one cannot purely believe if he doesn't have a relationship with God because you cannot trust in someone you do not know. It's impossible. Amen? That's why Paul's saying, he said, I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. How could Paul believe that God would keep his promises and keep the covenant that he made with him in salvation? It was because he said, I know whom I believed in. I've come to know him. I can trust him. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of people I know, but I'm not going to turn over my house keys and say, hey, man, I know you. Here's my keys. Before I do that, I'm going to have to trust them. I'm going to have to know them intimately. I'm going to have to know who they really, really are. Can I have an amen? You are not going to be able to be trusted with the deep things of God and have the keys of the kingdom handed to you on a silver platter until God can trust you with them. We want to be used of God? Then become a trustworthy Christian. Become a trustworthy believer. Become a trustworthy man of God. Remember how that Jesus put so much emphasis on the sin of unbelief? Oh, man, all through the scripture. And the children of Israel who come out of Egypt, they were what? Delivered from Egypt. That represents salvation. They even went through the Red Sea, which represents water baptism. But they never really was able to go into the promise, and their carcasses died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They never grew. They never matured. They never developed. There's also Jesus said in Matthew 13, uh, 13, 58, Jesus said, it says of Jesus, Jesus did no mighty works there because of their what? Their unbelief. A lack of faith is due to a lack of relationship with God. Faith grows, matures, and increases as, it, as we increase of our knowledge of him. Math, uh, Romans 10, 17 says, faith cometh by hearing, by hearing the word of God. The more I hear about him, the more I come to read about him, the more I study him, the more I become to know him. Amen? The more time I spend with him. Matter of fact, it was Jude, verse 20, that says, building up your most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. The more prayer time I have with God, the more study time I have with God, the more I come to know him. Amen? It's, it is relational. The brazen altar brings you into contact with Christ. It's the place of acquaintance. It's where you've been introduced to him through the new birth and through Calvary, the sacrifice, the place of sacrifice. 
It represents the place of salvation. It's fundamental. It's foundational. It's important. You go nowhere without coming through that brazen altar. But the holy place makes you become to know Christ. It's not one just of acquaintance. It's coming to know him. It's one of intimacy, devotion, and it's a one of commitment. It's one of worship, praise, and communion, and covenant with God. The more I come to know about Christ, the less I'm focused upon myself. You want to know if someone's really close to Christ? Listen to how they talk about themselves all the time. Watch them on the internet, how they got to promote themselves all the time. Nothing wrong with them, but you know what? All these selfies all the time, they're, they're looking for affirmation. It's all about them. The believer is to what? Be dead to him. Oh, man, I'm meddling now. I got to get past that. I'm losing the congregation over that remark. Amen? But the more we come to know about Christ, the less we are focused upon ourselves. And we as saints are not to take the initiative towards self-realization, but more of knowing Jesus himself. Self-realization only leads us to the glorification of good works or to condemnation because I want to tell you, if we try to do good works, we're always coming up short. We never arrive. Amen? Because our righteousness and our abilities and our, our, our talents are all as filthy rags. Amen? I didn't get saved by my good works, and I can stay saved by my good works. I'm going to give you a deep revelation. My good works is a product of me knowing Jesus. Amen? We have to come to the realization that it is Christ and Christ alone that glorifies himself through our mortal bodies. You got to catch this. Let me say it again. We have to come to the realization that it's Christ and Christ alone that can glorify himself through our mortal bodies. Our life is to be hid in Christ. Our life is not to be the focal point of anything. And our lives cannot bear the fruit possible to please him by ourselves. It can't be done. There is none of us capable, none of us that has the ability to produce fruit within ourselves. This is why they are called the fruit of the Spirit. They belong to the Spirit. And the only way to have the fruit is to have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, there'll be fruit. Hallelujah. A man that's void of the Spirit has no fruit. Therefore, our whole life must be surrendered unto his Lordship, and we gotta have a trust in him and him alone. He's the vine that brings life to the branches. Without him, we are nothing. He even said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you shall ask what you will and it shall be given to you and my Father which is in heaven. Even our prayers being answered is contingent upon whether or not we're abiding in him and him and us. Oh my, help us. This is why that Paul said in Galatians 5 and 20, I am crucified with Christ. Say crucified. Ugly word. I don't like it. No more than you do. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not I. It ain't me living. But it's Christ living in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. Now, you've heard me preach on this a hundred times, but Paul said he could not live it by himself. He had to learn how to let Christ live his life through him by being crucified. He said, I don't even live by my own faith. The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I'm dead, and because I'm crucified, I live, not I, but it's Christ living his life through me. I'm dead. I'm not the focal point. I'm not in charge. I don't have my own agenda. 
I don't even have my own will. I'm crucified. I'm dead. Dead men have no rights. He had to offer his body as a living sacrifice. Try it. It's hard. Amen. And we're not perfect at it. None of us are yet. We're all growing. We're all maturing. We're all developing. We're all evolving, they say. Amen. He had to learn how to wreck and mortify, crucify, sanctify the deeds of his body and yield them over to the lordship of Jesus. This is why Paul said in Philippians 3 and 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. Analyze that a minute. Paul didn't abandon the elementary or foundational principles of Christ. He said that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. He included the resurrection, which is one of the fundamental principles of the doctrines of Christ. Didn't abandon them. He said, hey man, everything's built upon that, hinged upon that. He's not saying they're not important. He even used it in the context here. He said, I include, he recognized the importance of the fundamental elementary principles of Christ's doctrine, and he said that they're the first oracles of God, they're the first step to growth. It's you being born again in the kingdom. However, he also revealed his pressing forward to the mark and the high calling of God in Christ Jesus when he said, I want to also not only know him in the power of his resurrection, but I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. He said, I don't want to dwell outside the court. I want to go to the holy place and I want to press on to maturity. I want to be mature. I want to be strong. I want to run the race well. I want to finish well. I started good and I want to finish good. How many, you started well if you come through the fundamentals of the faith. How many wants to finish good? The press. And the word press is hard. The woman with the issue of blood, she pressed her way through the multitude. Didn't let any distractions that she might touch the hem of his garment. Sometimes you have to fight. It's a press. It's a war. Amen. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 11 and 12. Not that I speak in want, for I've learned in whatsoever state I'm in to learn to be content. Wouldn't you like to sometimes look at your kids and say, can you not be contented with anything? The more you give them, the more they want. Am I the only parent that's failed? When they were younger, they were tyrants. Every time you give them something, it's never enough. Want something else. We went out west one time on a trip. We'd go into the store. Daddy, I want this. Daddy, I want this. Finally, you'd buy them a little something the next door. Daddy, I want that. I want that. And it's never enough. Amen. You buy them a brand new Volkswagen, but they want a Porsche. Amen. I don't even know if they make Volkswagen anymore. That's how far behind I am. But not that I speak in one, for I've learned whatsoever state I am to be content. I know both how to be abased. I know how to be abound. Everywhere in all things, listen to that, everywhere in all things, I'm instructed both to be full, to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Did you hear what Paul's saying? Paul said, in every circumstance I find myself in life, and no matter where I'm at, whether it's in a palace or prison, in a garden or a desert, in a fruitful orchard or in a barren field, I've learned how to be content. Whether I'm making tents or whether I'm getting paid for my evangelism work, I've learned to be content. Whether I'm hungry or full, whether I'm blessed or suffering, I have learned how to be content. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the church world could be like that? We're not about contenting anything. 
We're not at peace about anything. We're some of the most restless people on the face of the earth. I'm preaching to us today. No wonder Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 6, godliness with what? Contentment is what? Great gain. It's advancement. How many wants to advance? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Learning how to remain fruitful, productive, godly during life's test is a sign of maturity, growth, and development. Why is it, the, this is why the Paul said in Philippians 4 and 5, let your moderation, what does the word moderation mean there? In other words, he said, let the, your moderation of life, he said, in other words, let your manner of life and the way that you live be known unto all men that the Lord is at hand. In other words, he's telling them, no matter what's going on in your life, it should reflect a witness and reveal the Lord is at hand working in your life. If bad times are there and all hell's come against you and you're under demonic assault and everything's tearing up and everything's going wrong and you're, you're just in valleys and you're in trenches and you're worn your way out, it should not, your life at that point should not, it should reveal a life of stability, strength and power and victory and faithfulness and not one of doubt and fear and unbelief and sin and griping and murmuring and complaining and falling apart. He said, your life ought to be a source of strength, a light to the rest of the world, that no matter what you're going through, you're steady Eddie. Man, that man's a man of God. Look at what all he's going through. And yet he's got a smile. He's got a skip in a step. Oh, that hurt. <laughs> Amen? He is a man that's not tossed to and fro by every little wind of opposition. He's not falling apart because the washing machine tore up. He's not falling apart because the dog bit, bitching, the cat got ran over and the car, you know, won't start. Come on, somebody. We all go through those things. It rains upon the just and the unjust alike. They're going to happen. Terrible things happen to good people. Amen. It's not always a camp meeting atmosphere. The prophet Habakkuk gave us glimpses of this when he stated it in Habakkuk 3, verse 17 through 19. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, Neither shall the fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, there shall be no herd in the stiles, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will join the God of my salvation. The Lord, is my, the Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon my hind places. Habakkuk said, where there's no figs on the trees, where there's no fruit on the vines, where there's no olives dangling, when the fields yield no crop, when the flocks are cut off from the fold, when there's no herd in the stall, stalls. Does that sound like your home sometimes? Of course it does. Yet he says, I'm going to do what the Apostle Paul commands me to do. And he didn't even know the Apostle Paul, but he set, Paul set the example also. He says in Philippians 4 and 4, I will rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say I'll rejoice. When all this stuff's going on, I'm not gonna fall apart, I'm not gonna whine, I'm not gonna gripe, I'm not gonna crawl, I'm not gonna wallow in self-pity, I'm not gonna have pray prayers of doubt, I'm not gonna accuse God, I'm not gonna get angry at God, I'm not gonna withdraw from my abandonment of my worship, I'm not gonna withdraw from the, the, the devotions of my life, but I'm gonna rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say I'm gonna rejoice. Habakkuk said, I will rejoice in the Lord and the joy of, the, and the joy of God in my salvation. He said, I'm gonna obtain joy. Happiness is contingent upon circumstance. I'm happy because of this. But joy can happen anywhere. It's a fruit of the Spirit. 
I don't always have to be happy about everything, but I can be joyful about all things. When you know that God is with you, he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, and you're a person of victory, come on. Nothing's gonna separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus your Lord, and you know who you are, you know your feet are planted solidly, firmly in the faith, you got eternal rewards. You can have joy, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. Notice what Habakkuk said, I will join the God of my salvation. He couldn't make it happen in his own ability. He recognized God's salvation and he said, the Lord God is my strength. Amen? He couldn't do it within himself. He said, it is he that will make my feet like hind's feet. He didn't say, I gotta muster it up. I gotta pull myself up by the bootstraps. We always say that and there is some, some parts that we have to do and to be a co-laborer with God. We have to make choices. But ultimately, he said it was God's uh, it's God's responsibility to make my feet like Heinz feet. He couldn't do it within himself. As a matter of fact, what is Heinz feet? Everybody knows that. I preached that sermon before. Deer have what we would call a Heinz feet. Every time a deer runs, its front feet will go out and land. And if it's solid ground, it's been tested, the back feet will come and land right where the front feet. Have you ever seen deer feet about that four o'clock? It's because it's running. And the, the back feet are landing right where the front feet tested. Well, let me tell you who our front feet is. Jesus has already traveled from hell to glory. He's our front feet. All we gotta do is put our foot where his feet is. Can I have an amen? He's our example. The attitude of Habakkuk and Paul was alike. It was one of unrestrained abandonment and total surrender of themselves to God. That's hard. You want me to say that again? I think I got it wrote down that way. The attitude of the Habakkuk and Paul was alike. It was one of unrestrained abandonment and totally surrender of themselves to God. Habakkuk said, he will set me upon my high places. Two things he said. First of all, this speaks high places, speaks of advancement, victory, and it's ours. He says, it's my high places. When are we gonna understand that the promise is already ours? All we gotta do is move in and claim it. We got all kinds of promises and no one's opened the door to walk in and get them. High places speaks of advancement and victory. It's ours. It belongs to every believer. It's our high places. Isn't, isn't that what Paul said in the book of Ephesians 2, 5, and 6? He even says it. Even when we were dead in sin, says he quickened us together, and by grace are we saved. He has raised us up together. That means all of us. And he's made us. There we are again. No one left behind. To sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The exalted one wants to exalt us. So why are we living beneath our privileges? To sit, I like that. He makes us sit together. That implies rest and not labor. Oh, I love it. Wouldn't you like to rest in the Lord? It implies peace and not restlessness. There's so much restlessness. In heavenly places implies victory, exaltation, elevation, advancement, and security. The life of a believer should be a life of victory. Leaving the principles of the laying of hands also denotes living a healthy life. I move out of the courtyard and I move into the holy place where now my life even becomes healthy. What does the laying on the hands represent? Two things, it represents what? Healing. It also represents deliverance. By the laying on the hands, they cast out demons. I shouldn't have to be at an altar every Sunday morning and the saints laying hands on me having to deal with my strongholds. Why? I shouldn't always be an emotional wreck. 
I shouldn't be like a roller coaster all the time and people walk by, ooh, I don't know what kind of mood they're in. I'm afraid to ask them how they're doing today. Have you ever seen people like that? One minute, ah, hi, pastor. And the next one, <laughs> is it time for me to close and shut up? Amen. God wants you healthy, body, soul, mind, and spirit. He wants your whole body, soul, and mind to be, to be preserved blameless before the coming of the Lord. He wants you health. He wants you healthy. But so many of us carry around our wounds and our hurts, and we want to lay hands on you. We want to pray for you. We want to embrace you. But we don't need to be doing that for 20 years. There's got to be a time we move on. There's got to be a time we overcome. There's got to be a time that we grow up. Amen? You know, one of the things I found out some time ago, one of the grandkids was over at the house and um, no one was around and they, well, they were in the house but not where I was at and they just got done feeding little Jules, Juliet. This is some time back. I'm sitting at the table where we got done eating and everybody had left and went outside and done whatever. Jules in the living room and Ashley's standing by the door looking out. I'm in there by myself in the kitchen. I look down, and there is her baby food in a jar. And I thought, I wonder what that tastes like. <laughs> Let me give you some advice. Don't try it. You won't like it. And we have got tons of people that are living in the courtyard on baby food, on milk of the word, and they never tasted and see that the Lord is good. You can have your ground up peas in a jar. Give me a T-bone, baby. Give me the meat of the word. Can I have an amen? You know, even Jesus himself told us in Luke 10, 19, Behold, I give you power to tread upon scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing by any means shall hurt you. Victory only comes when we come to the conclusion and realization of Jesus Christ in every area of our lives, in both the good and the bad, and it is he that is the author and the finisher of our faith. We didn't start it. We didn't initiate it. I didn't choose him, he chose me. He draw me by his Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, I no more can finish what he started, he has to finish it himself. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. Philippians 4, 1 and 6 is being confident, say confident. Uh, be, uh, be confident of this very thing. He which begun a good work in you. He, say he. He'll perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. My faith is not in my ability. My faith is not in my ingenuity. My faith is not in my creativity. If this church was built upon creativity, we would be in serious trouble because I'm one of the least creative persons on the face of the earth. I'm plain as, as cornbread, as plain as that can get. But I want to tell you something. It's by the anointing of the Holy Spirit that things are done. It's a relationship with Christ. Every phrase of our life has its counterpart in the life of Jesus. We are not here for self-realization. We know who we are. We know our inabilities, but we're here 
so that we may know, come to know Jesus Christ. I have nothing to prove to God because he already knows my makeup. He knows my ups, my downs, what turns me on, what turns me off. He knows my personality. He knows everything about me. You know what? I can't impress him. I can't wow him. I can't surprise him. And thank God, I can't even depress him. Amen? I can't offer him anything that he don't already have. Amen? So why are we trying through our good works to somehow try to gain favor and approval with God? It can't be done. All I can do is please him through my life of sanctification, which is my separation unto him. Seen that in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1, how will we please God through our sanctification? And we abound more and more. The Galatians were in jeopardy of losing out their faith by not obeying the truth. Why? Paul told them the reason why they're about to lose out. You know what it was? Because you have not so learned Christ. You haven't learned him. You started off well, but who did, who did cause you to, to stumble, O foolish Galatians? You've not so learned Christ. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I'm meek and lonely in heart, and you shall find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burdens light. The command is to be yoked to Christ, to learn of him. Christ exhorts us, yoke up with me. When you like, if you're going to yoke up with somebody, man, yoke up with Jesus. They say a large ox can pull 1,000 pounds by itself. Two oxen can pull over 5,000 bites but with the two of them. The Bible says one can put 1,000 to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight. Think about it when we're yoked to Jesus. We pull very, very little, I'll tell you that for sure, but I want to tell you, when we're yoked together with Jesus Christ, he can pull down the world because all power is given to him in heaven and earth. Amen? Our way is full of ceaseless labor, but Christ's way is always a way of rest, peace, confidence, and contentment. Even though Jesus said in John 10 and 30, he said, me and my father, we're one. He even said in John 4 and 34, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He said, that's my desire. Did not he say that? We're one. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, finish his work. And even though we're saved and we desire to live for Christ and we're one with Christ at Calvary, yet just as Jesus had to sanctify his will to the Father in the garden, even so you and I are gonna have to learn how to sanctify ourselves. It was said of Jesus in Matthew 26 and 39, and he went a little farther, he fell on his face, and he prayed saying, oh my father, if there be any way possible, let this cup pray for me. There's a war, there's a struggle. That's his example, that's it. We enter into them sufferings with him. Come on, there's temptation here. But he said, nevertheless, not my will be done but thine. Can I ask you, is a servant any better than their master? If our Lord and Savior had to sanctify his flesh which was sinless, to his father, how much more do we have to sanctify our flesh which is sinful to our father? The hardest question Jesus ever asked his followers. You know where it's found? I come to the conclusion, this is the hardest question Jesus has ever asked any believer. He says, are you able to drink, in Matthew 20, 22, are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized in? Oh. What cup is Jesus talking about? The cup of suffering, the cup of death, the cup of his crucifixion. He looks at you as a believer and say, hey, 
Are you going to be able to drink of the same cup I've drank of? Are you going to be able to be crucified in your flesh like I'm going to go to a cross physically to be crucified? Are you going to be able to do it in a spiritual sense? Are you going to be able to die out to yourself? Unless a person denies himself and takes up his cross and follows after him, he can't even be his disciple. That's hard words, my friend. He said, are you going to be able to drink of the cup I drink of? Are you going to be able to drink that bitterness where you lay your side, self aside, your dreams, your ambitions, your agendas, your goals, your wants? And are you going to, have to, are you going to learn how to delight yourself in the Lord and let God place his desire in your heart? He shall give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? It don't give you what you desire. He lets your desires go to the, by the wayside and then he places his own desire in your heart that you would fulfill his desire for your life. I want to tell you, when God's in charge, the things I think is important is not. Look at Solomon. He tried it on his own. Go read the book of Ecclesiastics. All those chapters of all the things he had and all the things he done, all the things he accomplished, all the things he wanted, all the women, all the gold, all the silver, all the big mansions, all of, just had everything he wanted. I mean, the man, anything that anything he could think of, he could have. He's king. He's doing anything he wants. And when he pins it all down, he said, "I've had it all. I've done it all. I've tried it all, and but it's all vanity. It's all vanity." It's all dung. It's all manure. And he says, the only way I know to do is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty. When you place him first, he gives you his desire and you live out what God wants you to do for his life. I was wanting to get into the furnishings of the holy place this morning. Oh, but because of time I can't, I'm, I'm going to close here. I didn't realize this already that time. The, the furnishings represent the things that help us grow and maintain our sanctification with God. When you get inside, we're going to see it after a while. Next week, we're going to talk about, if the Lord willing, we'll talk about the table of showbread. We're going to talk about the altar of incense, and we're going to talk about the golden lampstand. Them are things that's in the holy place. But listen to me. The furnishings represent different things, different stations that we go through. And it's important for us to see that the laver, though, is not in the holy place. The laver's in the outer court. It's not in the holy place. The act of sanctification of the heart does not take place in that holy place. It takes place in the outer court. Everybody says, oh, if I could just get into that inner court, I could be sanctified. You can't even get in there without sanctification. Amen? In other words, the ceremonial observances of those different stations representing the holy place does not sanctify us by us working them out. It's not by our works. I'm not sanctified because I go to the table of showbread. I'm not sanctified because I go to the altar of incense. I'm not sanctified by going to the golden candlestick, them the place of ministries. And yes, I'll, I'll get into it in just a minute. They help me grow in my sanctification, but they themselves is not sanctification. That's our problem. We're trying to be sanctified by what we do. If, I, if I'll go to the altar, uh, of incense more and if I'll go to the table of showbread more and if I'll go to the candlestick and I'll tell you what those represent next week. If I'll do this, if I'll do that, if I'll pay my tithes, if I'll sing in the choir, if I'll do all these different things, then I'll be sanctified. By my works, I'll please God. No! I want to tell you, I can no more sanctify myself than I can save myself. 
Sanctification is me going past the brazen altar and going to a laver, which is a place of consecrating my will and saying, Lord, I die out. That's all I can do is just die. You have the ability to die, and that's about all that you have to do. And God has to set that heart apart. I will not even have the strength, the desire, the want to, the ability to go in and even go and be obedient to those stations if it wasn't for my heart being sanctified. It is the inner dwelling strength that God, through his power of passion, rises up inside of me that compels me to go into that holy place. I go in as a result of my heart being set apart, not trying to get sanctified by going in. Can I have an amen? Do we not understand that it's not by works, it's by relationship? Oh, sanctification is a heart thing, it's not a work thing. We have to be able to drink of Jesus' cup. All he asks us to do is die. And to be baptized with the baptism, he's baptized. I cannot even work or serve at these stations if it were not for the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. It's not by power, it's not by my, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. I hear people all the time say, well, I just gotta start over in life. I get so tardy hearing this. They say, I gotta, I, I gotta leave my job because I've messed up on the job and I'll get, never get the raise and I'll never get the promotion I need because I blundered. And because of my blunder, they'll, they'll bypass me and overlook me for the rest of my life. Oh, I gotta leave my wife. I, I messed up, and because I messed up, even though she's willing to try, it'll always be a struggle. She'll never look at me the same, and I might as well discard her and find another. I gotta find a place of start over. It's getting quiet. Oh, I gotta leave the church because everybody knows my my hiccup, my my trial, my troubles, and my problems. Everybody knows where I went wrong, so I just got to find me another church so I can start over with a new congregation. Come on. I got to start over. I got to leave Popper Bluff because everybody around here knows who I am. I got to leave my hometown and we'll be able to start over. I got to go find me another place. You know what's going to happen to you? You're going to be leaving and moving your whole lifetime because sanctification is not glorification. And there's nobody here in this place with their nose so pious that they won't welcome you into the inner circle. And the only thing keeping people out of the inner circle with Christ is not the inner circle themselves, but it's a way they think about themselves and what they think about themselves is the way they view everybody else thinking about them. Their own lack of, their own intimidation and their own low self-esteem they think, oh, everybody's judging me. They think they're better than I am. Look at that holy rollers over there. I, blah, 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 blah. And the whole thing of it is they're desiring to become that, but they feel like that they can't, and they feel like that the holy rollers that's inside that inner group that's flowing, that's anointed, that's involved in ministry, they're the ones that everybody's looking to. They're the go-to people. They're the rock. They're the stabilizers of the church. And everybody's, ah, they just got their clicks down there. There is not one person in that group that wouldn't welcome you to come alongside and be a part of that group. The problem of it is your own view of yourself keeps you out because you've not got a heart of sanctification. Can I have an amen? Am I being mean? No, that's where people are at. Oh, I'm gonna close. When there is good works that's manifested from my life or your life, you know what happens? They testify of his inner dwelling because those works could not be done if he was not sitting on the throne of the heart. 
So therefore, it is not me that gets praise for what I do. It's God getting praise for living his life out through me. And therefore, he gets all the glory and I get none. If there's any good in Kent Miller, it's the good that Jesus brings. Because in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Paul said that. There's nothing good about Louise Marvin's flesh. Beautiful lady. There's nothing good about Bill Marvin's flesh. But their spirits as pure as white driven snow. And everything good about them is what they have put off the old man and their deeds and put on Christ. And now it's Christ that lives through them and in them. And the good works that is seen is nothing more than a testimony that God is with them and they know God. Would you stand with me?